0: up everybody welcome back to the strange matters podcast this is eric back for another episode and i'm joined by my fellow co-host sean
1: hello everybody so in this episode we will be talking about one of the most notorious and disturbing murderers in american history a man who preyed on the young and innocent and terrified anyone who had the misfortune of running across him before he was discovered this man was only known as a near mythical legend going by nicknames such as the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, and the Boogeyman. In this episode, we'll be talking about the American serial killer, rapist, and cannibal known as Albert Fish.
0: Recognition for this episode goes to our latest Tier 3 supporter, Matthew. Matthew has been a longtime supporter of Strange Matters Podcast ever since the very early stages of our show. He was generous enough to pledge $15 a month to become a Tier 3 patron, and he has selected this dark and twisted topic for the month of September. Right now we have three Tier 3 supporters marked out through October, so if you're interested in reserving your spot in line for a full-length episode devoted to you, where you can choose the topic and pretty much direct the episode however you want it, be sure to check out our Patreon page, as we only have two more slots for preferred patrons at which point we'll go back to our first preferred patron, Sean V., and offer another topic to him and sort of follow that sequence. And just a reminder that we do get a lot of really great suggestions for episodes, but since this is a hobby for us and by no means our full-time job, it's unfortunately not realistic for us to get to every recommendation. But Patreon is definitely a good way to get your ideas prioritized.
1: Yeah, so before we get started on this episode, we are also excited to announce, uh, in big part due to the supporters of Strange Matters, we have actually started our very own production company behind this podcast, which is called Campfire Audio Productions. So the inspiration for the name of our company came about on the same night that would serve as the inspiration and idea to create this podcast, as we were basically just sitting around a campfire into the late hours of the night, and just kind of switching, talking about our favorite creepy and disturbing mysteries and crime cases so again thanks to everyone who has supported strange matters that allowed us to create this company and continue our goal of growing into the podcasting business and also along those lines with campfire audio productions we have launched another podcast on the side teaming up with our friend and fellow co-founder of strange matters ethan who some of our longtime listeners will remember from our earlier episodes so just as we created strange matters due to our usual discussions on strange and unusual topics. Ethan got the idea to start a comedy-style debate podcast, also because of the silly and off-the-wall questions that us guys just kind of joke around with while together. So this new podcast is called the HQTA Podcast, standing for Hard Questions, Tougher Answers.
0: And a quick warning, we do generally get a little crazy with our topics sometimes. Some of the discussions can be How you would imagine a conversation to be with three guys sitting on a back porch shooting the breeze, including, but not limited to, gross and sometimes even nerdy, what-if and would-you-rather style questions.
1: Yeah, so if any of you listeners want to hear a more laid-back and comedic nature to all of us, which some of you may need after this dark and depressing topic of this particular episode, please check out the HQTA podcast.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It'll probably be a good uh, balance for this episode and some of the episodes that we discuss in Strange Matters.
1: Yeah. So we would like to give a quick warning before we begin talking about Albert Fish. The content and this episode is extremely disturbing and unsettling and may upset some of you listeners. So we have given out a few warnings before on some of our more disturbing episodes, but I personally feel like this is probably the darkest one yet. Agreed. So I guess we'll start as usual with a little bit of background in history. So Albert Fish is one of the most infamous killers in American history, both in part to his victims being young children and for his inhuman nature and disturbing desires. Much of Albert's legend comes from mystery, as we still aren't sure just how many young victims he had before he was caught. Based on accusations during his trial and his pre-trial interviews with a Dr. Frederick Wortham of Bellevue Hospital, Albert Fish either confessed or was implicated in the molestation of over 400 children, the torture and disfigurement of approximately 100 more victims, and the murder of at least 15 children over a 20-year period. As some of you listeners who have done your own research in the serial killer's, Might recognize Albert from one of his most notorious quotes, saying, I like children, they are tasty. When asked about the number of children that he had harmed or killed, Albert Fish boasted that he had children in every state. Though we have covered a number of sadistic murderers and criminals on the course of the Strange Matters podcast, I truly can't think of anyone worse than an evil man who would abuse, kill, and then eat children. A lot
0: of his claims haven't been fully substantiated yet, and he was known to be a pathological liar. Um, So, the exact number of victims that he had is very, very difficult to actually confirm. Um, But I think he makes up for it just in the brutality of his crimes. Um, Even though, you know, again, we might not know how many children he actually tortured and murdered.
1: Yeah, um, I would agree with that, that he did—it's kind of hard to separate the the fact from just his embellishments and exaggerations, but it does have to be said with Albert, even if he only did 20% of what he said, it would still probably make him one of the worst criminals in history. So, as can be guessed by how he would eventually turn out, Albert Fish did not have a normal childhood by any means— His father, Randall Fish, was 75 years old at the time of his birth. Ellen Fish, his wife, was 43 years younger than her husband when Albert was born. He would be the youngest of three siblings, two brothers and a sister. His birth name was actually Hamilton Howard, but when he was young, he chose to go by the name of Albert after a sibling that had died before he was born. And another reason for this desire name change was because he was sick of his childhood moniker, ham and eggs, which Albert somehow earned at some point in his youth. Another fact that should come as no surprise is how badly Albert's family suffered from various mental illnesses. So one of his brothers was locked away in a mental hospital, his sister Annie was diagnosed with what was just termed a mental affliction, his mother was known to frequently have visual hallucinations, and one of his uncles had bouts of mania. Almost every single person in his immediate and extended family suffered from some type of mental disorder or condition, and it wasn't long to his life that Albert himself would start to show some unusual traits as well.
0: And as I've stated in a few of our older episodes, as a pharmacist who has done multiple different like rotations in behavioral health... The psychological aspects of some of the individuals we discuss is particularly striking to me. And it's not surprising that probably the most predisposing factors to psychological afflictions is both a family history of mental illness and also a traumatic childhood event or just a traumatic childhood in general. And Albert had both of these and at least seven relatives with mental disorders. Um, So Sean talked about a few of them. Uh another one suffer suffered from really serious religious mania and then one brother was fibble minded, which means he just was was had a really low IQ basically and was very incapable of functioning in social situations. And another one was an alcoholic and two di- two actually died while they were institutionalized.
1: Yeah, so his whole family just had a bad history of mental illnesses. And to expand even further on the warped psychological aspect of this killer, Dr. Wortham, the doctor who would assess Albert before his later trial, stated that Fish exhibited 18 different paraphilia. Some of these include cannibalism, castration, exhibitionism, flagellation, hypereroticism, masochism, pedophilia, sadism, and voyeurism. So that's quite a bit, 18 different paraphilia. Eric, I think you only have like 10 or something, so <laughs> he's got you beat there. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to put it simply, during his testimony at Albert's trial, Dr. Wortham stated that Albert acted on every recognized sexual abnormality that was recognized by modern medicine of the day. So some killers and rapists, they kind of seem to only have maybe one or two particular kinks or fetishes that set them off while Albert's Sick Desires literally runs the full and entire gamut. Albert's case has been brought up in the nature-versus-nurture aspect of etiology of serial killers, So the question is, are people like this born and destined to do horrible things just due to their genetic disposition, or is it trauma caused in their upbringing that caused their mind to develop differently? So arguments can be made for both nature and nurture regarding Albert's case— as mental illness clearly ran in his family, but he also had a very troubling and disturbed childhood. So we're going to be talking about this a little bit later on, but I was, I'm no expert, but I would have to think that both of these paths probably came into play. I would almost be surprised if someone grew up in a similar situation as Albert Fish with all his family traits and turned out to be normal. So
0: Yeah, and to speak to the other criteria, so the childhood trauma that I mentioned earlier, things just continue to get darker and darker for Albert. So he spent most of his childhood actually in an orphanage after his father died when he was just five years old. And in this orphanage, he was forced to participate in various lewd activities, including, and in, if if you didn't listen to our warning at the beginning of the episode, now's the time to brace yourself. So some of the activities that he was forced to participate in, included masturbating in front of an audience and enduring brutal beatings, which eventually would cause him to become actually kind of sexually aroused by pain. And Fish also was noted to have been a problematic resident of the orphanage, as he would frequently run away and even wet the bed until the age of 11. And he would later state
1: that the place ruined my mind. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely seem that it was in the orphanage where the seed was planted that eventually caused Albert to become the vile monster that he would grow up to be. Uh, As Eric just mentioned, his time at the orphanage was very traumatic, as Albert frequently received beatings from the adults, as well as having to stand and watch when the other boys were punished as well. So Albert's treatment has been described as being a severe form of shame punishing, something that would come back to him as an adult. So according to Albert's own statements, his experiences at the orphanage as a very young boy influenced his claims that he always desired to inflict pain on others while also seeking to have pain inflicted upon himself. And as Eric mentioned also, it was here in the orphanage where Fish first became sexually aroused whenever pain was inflicted on him, and he began to experience equal delight while watching others being beaten around him.
0: So finally, by the age of seven, he would actually be reunited with his mother. So he would get to leave the orphanage and go back with her. And at some point, um, he in his childhood, he would fall out of a tree, which caused a traumatic injury to his head, and caused him to have dizzy spells and various other kind of neurological side effects. So we talked about the first two criteria for having a, a, a psychological malfunction this is probably the third most important criteria to lead to mental disorders so he actually had three pretty big risk factors for having a, a mental problem.
1: Yeah, this is something you see a lot if you are researching a bunch of you know serial killers and stuff. The chances are a good amount of them did have some kind of head trauma when they were really young so Albert, as Eric said, definitely fits that bill as well. So, now that he was free from the constraints of the orphanage, Albert would begin to seek out and expand upon his growing sexual deviancy. When he was just 12 years old, he began a sexual relationship with a telegraph boy, and this boy would introduce Albert to the fetish of consuming human urine and waste. Also during this time, Albert developed into becoming a peeping Tom, and enjoying and enjoyed sneaking into public bathrooms and YMCAs and stuff like that to watch boys and young men get undressed. As a teenager, Albert would become a house painter, a job that he would hold for quite some time, and Albert would use this part-time job to his advantage, as it is believed that he would seek out and abuse children of his clients whenever he gained access to their homes.
0: So over the next couple decades, he would travel the land working all sorts of different odd jobs, and by the time he turned 28, he actually was kind of forced into a a normal path in life when, I think it was his mother hooked him up with a young woman who he would marry, and after a very short period of time, the woman would actually run off with another man, and she would eventually return to Albert, whom he would receive back, but only if she promised to give her boyfriend the boot. However, after, again, another short period of time, he would discover that she was actually keeping her new lover in the attic of their house. After an argument, she would again leave Albert to take care of their, wait for it, six children that they had together. And my wife thinks it's bad when I leave here for the afternoon with our son. She has no idea. (laughs) But while he was an affectionate father and grandfather, he would later admit that his feelings towards children were changing in an odd way that he described as being possessed by a lust for their blood. At this point, it's probably clear what caused this malfunction.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does have to say that Albert was not an ideal father by any means, but he probably did provide a more stable and normal childhood for his own children than he had. So I guess you get to give him him props for that. And even more
0: stable than his wife could provide. I mean, given we don't know a thing about the wife, she could have very easily had some sort of psychological problem as well. But it is, you know, worth saying that he was a pretty good father. So,
1: yeah. So before his eventual trial, um, Albert would say that at this point, his wife leaving him had a very large and negative impact on his life, and he told the doctors that he believed that his wife's infidelity and when she ran off was to blame for all his deviant nature. However, this wasn't really believed to be entirely true, if at all, because, I mean, at this time, Albert had basically already committed nearly every sexual crime known to man, so it's kind of hard to take him at at his word with this.
0: So at this point, he seemed to really... It's kind of like it was the straw that broke the camel's back. He really started to have a mental break, and his behaviors became more and more bizarre. So he would take his family to their summer home and be observed doing various unusual things like climbing to the top of a hill and shaking his fist at the sky, proclaiming I am Christ. In addition, he developed this sadomasochistic obsession with pain, his own or others, and would admit to enjoying being flawed. Even stranger, he would encourage his own children and neighborhood children to paddle his buttocks until they bled with a very large nail-studded paddle. Other ritualistic punishments he would subject himself to include inserting needles into his genital area and burning himself with hot irons. And I even read that he would actually put wool soaked in some sort of accelerant into his putt and ignite it, which is just
1: crazy to me. Yeah, that seemed to be a favorite of his. He would do the same thing with toilet paper also. So (laughs) He got that hot butt. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the the pins, like in the needles, that's another really odd thing that Albert would do. And he, he did that pretty much his whole life. And when Albert was eventually caught, he would be found with several dozen of those needles, and they were all stuck into either his penis or just groin area and they took a, an x-ray of it, and it would show during his trial to display his devious nature, and then the x-ray, you can just see like a picture of his pelvis, and there's just like 20 needles stuck all over the place. So, Yeah.
0: I don't know if that was used by... I mean, I assume it was used by the defense, um, but we'll kind of get into the details about his trial later. So he would also consume large quantities of raw meat, And became obsessed with cannibalism, reading books and materials on it for hours. And he was always carrying around books about cannibalism with him everywhere he went. And naturally, his children and loved ones became concerned. And after various visits to psychiatrists, he would be released as disturbed but sane. Over time, his mental health would continue to deteriorate deeper and deeper until it finally began to turn to violence.
1: Yeah, so I think that's what it was. I think like everyone knew he was not normal by any stretch of the means, but they might have just thought he was a just a harmless, creepy pervert. And the entire time they were unaware of the crimes he was committing. So I assume if anyone knew that he was actually harming people, then he would not have been released from any psychiatric hospital. So I guess now we'll start to get into more of the the crimes that he's known for. So up until this point, we have talked a little bit about Albert's troublesome and abusive childhood, his so far unusual adult life, and a few potential causes for his deviant mind. However, what is most disturbing about Albert Fish are the crimes that he would commit over his lifetime. Now when he was just 20 years old, he moved with his mother to New York, and it is here that his dark nature really came out. So Albert would become a male prostitute as both a side job and a way to satisfy some of his sexual urges. Also during this time, he would frequently seek out to molest and rape young children, believed to be mostly if not all boys. Now, As he committed these crimes, his list of perversions would grow, as he would say he wanted to try virtually every act that crossed his imagination or ones that he heard about or picked up from others. Those methods of abusing children would change depending on his mood and opportunity. Sometimes he would strike out quickly to harm a child if the moment presented itself, while other times he would set it up so he could abduct his victims and hold them for several days or weeks to carry out whatever he had in mind. One such victim came about sometime after
0: Fitch's marriage in 1910, where he fell into a sadomasochistic relationship with a 19-year-old, mentally disabled man named Thomas Keaton. Their relationship thrived for a while until Fish couldn't handle his urges anymore and lured Keaton into an abandoned barn where he trapped, tortured, and sexually mutilated the man for days. Before Keaton realized what he had gotten himself into, kind of in the earlier stages of the process, Fish actually tied him to a chair and began to cut off the head of his penis with a pair of scissors. Later, Fish would state, I shall never forget his scream, nor the look he gave me. He initially planned to kill Keaton, and he was gonna chop him up into pieces, but his fear of being caught overtook him, and he patched up the young man,
1: left a $10 bill, kissed him on the forehead, and fled. I think think it might take more than $10 to uh, (laughs) make up for what he tried to do. (laughs) I
0: mean, I know ten dollars was a lot of money at the time, but yeah, it's, it's probably kind of could have used a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I think nothing was ever heard from Keaton ever again. So,
1: yeah, these this is again all of these stories um, are based pretty much entirely on Albert Fish's confessions. Later on, some of them are definitely corroborated, um, but a few of these kind of stories he's well known for. It's up to basically your judgment if you want to believe it actually happened or not.
0: Yeah, but then again, if I was Keaton at the time, I probably wouldn't have been, would not have been rushing to the nearest police station to report what was going on. That's true. So in 1924, an eight-year-old boy by the name of Francis McDonald would go missing after playing ball with some of his friends. Later, his body was found near his home in the woods, hung from a tree. He had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and his body had many severe lacerations. Not only this, but his left hamstring had been almost completely stripped of flesh. McDonald's friends would state they saw the boy with a, quote, gray man, which was almost undoubtedly determined to be Fish. Later, Fish would deny having anything to do with the murder until... A little bit later on, admitting he had intended to castrate the boy before leaving the crime scene.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of Albert Fish's first well-known crime. Uh, Again, he earned the nickname The Gray Man for several people who saw him in the area, and then the the boy who witnessed him. His legend would kind of spread throughout the region, and people kind of treated The Gray Man as like a story, like watch out kids or The Gray Man will get you. So, as we move on from that, Albert Fish's most notorious and well-known crime is probably the murder of a young girl named Grace Budd. And though this murder is what he is most known for besides his laundry list of perversions and paraphilia, it is interesting to note that Grace was not actually his originally intended victim.
0: Yeah, and it's also worth stating that at this point in time, we've kind of been talking this talking about this as a timeline, but Fish had been become completely detached from reality at this point. And as you'll see later in some of his quotes, he actually believed that God demanded him to torture and mutilate his victims using meat cleavers and hand saws.
1: Yeah, so he thought that he was just carrying out God's will with all his crimes and stuff. So we see at this point in his life, Albert is starting to kick up his dark nature even further as he's crossing over from his previous, you know, acts of just torture and molesting and now he's moving into cold-blooded murder. So in order to accomplish his next crime, he planned out a way that would allow him to take his intended victim to a secluded location where he could follow through with his act with no fear of being caught or suspected. In the May of 1928, Albert would see his opportunity nearly handed to him. On a Sunday while reading the local paper, he saw a classified advert stating, Young man, 18, wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. So seeing this as the opportunity he had been waiting for, Albert would visit the Budd family on the pretense of hiring the young man to work on his farm. Though by now we think of Albert as possibly the creepiest man in history. At the time he was able to charm and con his way into getting what he wanted, which in a way to me is somewhat simil- which in a way to me is somewhat similar to his fellow serial killer H.H. Holmes. So Albert introduced himself as a Mr. Howard, a farmer from Farmingdale, New York. While spending some time with the Bud family, he told them that he was in need of some good help and Edward said he was eager to be up for the job. Edward also mentioned that his friend Willie was a hard worker looking for a job as well, so Albert Fish, acting as Mr. Howard at the time, agreed that both the young men could work for him. Unbeknownst to everyone involved, Albert had a very different plan in mind over farming, as he would later confess that his plan was to kidnap Edward, tie him up, torture and mutilate him over a long period, and finally leave the young man to slowly bleed to death while Albert made his getaway. Albert told the Bud family he was more than happy to have Edward and his friend Willie work for him, and told them he would return in a few days to pick them up. He would not show up on the scheduled day, however, and instead sent a telegraph with an apology. And during this time, he would buy several devices that he would use in his eventual murder, so he bought, you know, some saws, knives, hammers, things like that. So the next day, Albert did show back up and again spent some time socializing with the Bud family, getting them to trust him before he and Edward were planning to set out. It was here that Albert's plan would drastically change, and he would find his true murder victim by chance. Before leaving the Buds, the young daughter of the family, Grace, would show up and be introduced to this Mr. Howard. Albert would later say he nearly instantly changed his mind on who he wanted his victim to be, switching from the young man Edward to the young girl Grace. Always the schemer, Albert made up a last-minute plan and told the family that before he left with Edward, he had to attend his niece's birthday party nearby, and that if the family was okay with it, he would bring Grace along as he thought the two young girls would be friends. The Bud family had no problem with this, and told Mr. Howard that he could take her for the afternoon. Robert told them that he would be back shortly, and he would return to pick up Edward and exchange his final pleasantries with the family.
0: It's interesting how times have changed. I can't see any normal person these days being willing to send their young daughter away with an old man, no matter how charming he may appear. The mother was a little hesitant at first, but the father ended up convincing her that the girl needed to get out of the house and have a little fun fish promised that he would return the girl by 9 that night and i'm sure by the next morning the father was deeply regretting his decision
1: yeah i mean that is true about the the change of the times i mean nowadays people spend so much time you know comparing and looking up uh you know background checks and like babysitters and daycare centers and then yeah and so here we go, a little less than a century ago, and this family is letting their daughter go out with basically a stranger, some guy that they've only met basically right. twice.
0: Well, with the news and social media and the internet, I mean, everybody in the world these days is pretty much aware of how many sickos are out there. These people may have never heard of such a thing as Albert Fish
1: yeah. at this point in time. That's true, because we had the benefit of knowing Albert Fish's existed, while back then they probably didn't. So, as we're alluding to, uh, the family could not even imagine that this friendly but slightly weird older man, who was supposed to be taking their daughter to a birthday party, was instead one of the most vile and evil men in the entire country, and that he had finally found his chosen murder victim. Following up his quickly made plan, Albert would buy a two-way ticket for himself and a one-way ticket for young Grace, and they got on a train. He would end up taking her to an abandoned house where he would in fact murder the young child. As horrible as the actual murder was, Albert did not stop there. Some years later, he would end up writing a letter to the mother of Grace explaining in detail the final fate of her daughter. What makes this even sadder is that Miss Budd didn't know how to read, so she had to have her son Edward, who was Albert's original victim, read it to her. And I have to be honest in saying that this letter is one of the worst things that I've ever read. So, once again, I have to give a warning to you listeners. So, Albert's letter goes like this. My dear Mrs. Budd, In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a duck hand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time there, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food, in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under fourteen was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of a naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out, and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlets, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy, because he had the fattest ass, and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven. All of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid it in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? I choked her to death, then cut her into small pieces so I could make my meat to my rooms. Cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wish. She died a virgin.
0: Pretty sick stuff right there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It makes me pretty sick to my stomach to hear that. But Fish was, again, a compulsive liar, which kind of goes along with the psychosis he later admitted that he did actually rape the girl, so it may not be true, um, and, you know, obviously at this point we'll never know, uh, but there appears to be little reason that he wouldn't, given his other crimes.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the the real crimes where we definitely know that he murdered her, um, just because later on he was able to go with the police and point out what had happened and was able to show them bloodstains and what had happened. Uh, but he did go through several iterations of the story and what all he did and what he didn't do. So there is some debate of, you know, the extent of what he all did to the to Little Grace. But it, it is one of the, the worst things that I've re- ever read. So I, I remember reading that for the first time probably like five or six years ago and just felt like garbage for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel at yeah. this very moment. Um, I mean, it is truly horrifying as that letter is. If there is any silver lining to the whole thing, it's that this letter would actually be the one thing that would eventually lead to Albert Fish's eventual capture and arrest. Yeah. So, Sean, you had
0: mentioned earlier that the letter was wasn't sent for several years. It was actually, um not received until six years after grace's initial disappearance. And the letter was really poorly written with many spelling and grammatical errors. And it didn't have any signature, obviously. Um, although it was clear that the author was the one who abducted grace just because of the details that he provided in the letter, you know, about, you know, the day, the exact day that he came to their house and how he brought them gifts and stuff. Um, But it was actually the stationery that the letter was written on that was traced back to a boarding house where the police went and found Albert Fish. And shortly thereafter, he ended up confessing to the murder of Grace Budd. He was subsequently found fit to stand trial, although few would question his lack of sanity.
1: Yeah, the question of his sanity was really the, the big deal with his whole trial. So his trial would last 10 days... His primary defense, as most people probably guess, was built around proving his insanity, as Albert would play up again that he was hearing voices from God. So for a good portion of his life, Albert was obsessed with the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac, as he said that the boys that he took were his own versions of the sacrifice. And if he was doing anything wrong, he was expecting an angel to show up and tell him to stop, just as in the biblical story. Dr. Wortham, who we've mentioned before, was an expert witness in studying Albert's psychology, summed up the man with one brief sentence when asked about his state of mind. He is insane. Albert's defense attorney, James Dempsey, also rolled out his long list of sexual fetishes, stating that the man was a psychiatric phenomenon, the likes of which have never been recorded. But despite the defense's best effort, Albert would be found sane and guilty, and ultimately sentenced to death by electric chair. The defense, in my opinion, had a pretty
0: decent argument, I mean, pointing to his life of depravity and strange masochistic ways to prove that he was just simply insane. They actually challenged the prosecution to prove that a man who tortured and ate children was actually sane which, you know, nobody can do. Um, However, you know, this all came to no avail.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the jury did find him sane, but when they were asked afterwards, several jurors did admit that the gray man was obviously insane, but they still felt that a person who had done so much evil just deserved to die anyways.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the trial actually lasted ten days because I think so much evidence and testimonies. um, But the jury came actually came to a verdict in under an hour.
1: Surprising, took him that long. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's there is no way that Albert was getting off. Um, I mean, as the he had actually gotten off plenty of times. That's true. One last dark joke. So as to be expected at this point, Albert had his own unique take on his death sentence. When asked about his sentence, Albert said, I have no particular desire to live. I have no particular desire to be killed. It is a matter of indifference to me. I do not think I am altogether right. So that's a bit of an understatement, but I think it does show that he wasn't too upset about his guilty verdict.
0: Yeah, I mean, and for me, it's like even if the defense had won the argument that he was in fact insane i mean if albert fish doesn't really mind getting the electric chair then why not just find him guilty i mean he's clearly gonna serve no purpose to society and the man's done so many sick crimes i think it's just better off to get rid of him irregardless of his mental state
1: yeah i think pretty much everybody would agree with you right and that's yeah. just uh,
0: opinion but whatever
1: I mean, speaking of his kind of attitude, uh, when talking about his method of execution, Albert actually brightened up a bit and said, what a thrill that will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried.
0: (laughs) So, obviously, there's a period of time between his conviction and when he actually gets the chair. So, while he was imprisoned, he actually revealed revealed more and more details about some of his past crimes. Again, you know, some of this can't really be corroborated, but while he was imprisoned, he would send letters to his attorney detailing various other crimes that he had committed. And one such story was of a boy named Bill Gaffney, who had gone missing from his apartment building after a run-in with the infamous Gray Man. And Fish stated in his letter... I whipped his bear behind till blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slid his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew, threw them at the toilet.
1: Yeah, so these are just little portions of some of Albert Fish's letters. If you have the desire to read more, you can find them online. They are truly some of the worst things you will ever read. They are extremely upsetting. So during his time in prison leading up to his death, Albert still managed to be a troublemaker. His food had to be picked clean of any bones or sharp edges as he would use them to either cut or pierce his body. Also, the usual use of force of beating an inmate who is not behaving didn't really work on the elder Albert, as he, of course, happened to enjoy such a thing, so they had to come up with other methods to deal with him.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a bizarre Catch-22 to think that you can't beat him or cause him pain as a means of forcing compliance, because it's literally, like, what he gets off to. But at the same time, it's like, why does the prison prevent him from harming himself? If ultimately they're just going to kill him anyways, so it's kind of a, a weird, twisted situation.
1: Yeah, I just the people back then probably had no idea how to handle a person like Albert Fish. I mean, even today, I I don't know if there's anyone quite like him around. So they were kind of they're kind of probably just dealing with somebody who was kind of the first of their kind, right?
0: I guess these days you'd probably just. Put him in a straitjacket and throw him in a padded room or something and feed him yeah, applesauce.
1: And dope him up or something. Yeah. So on January 16th of 1936, Albert Fish made his way to the electric chair in Sing Sing Prison. Unlike some other well-known serial killers, Albert didn't really make a scene or act upset, but instead went through the process with his recent attitude of just indifference. Even helping the attending physicians and placing the electrodes about his body, and right before the executioner would flip the switch, Albert would mutter his last words of, "I don't even know why I'm here." <laughs> what a odd thing to say before you die. Uh, it's, he's an odd guy. He had to, get, yeah. he did have to just get like one last little weird thing in. <laughs> it's so like anticlimactic. Like if. You expect the last
0: words that somebody says before they die to be something of substance, but it's just completely
1: (laughs) useless. Yeah, I don't know why I'm here. I mean, for some time after his death, there was a rumor that the electric chair actually short-circuited and that Albert's groin area, like, burst into flames due to all the metallic needles still in his body. Uh, But this was just an embellishment added later, so according to those who witnessed his death albert died just in the same way that every other criminal did again this is this guy's just
0: one of the sickest dudes in history the sickest guy i've ever heard about um so i guess wrap up with a little bit of discussion so should he have been found it found guilty i mean i think it's hard to make the argument that he wasn't insane um in some way or another But if he is willing to die, and ultimately his actions are deserving of such an outcome, in my opinion, then why not just put him in the electric chair and be done with it?
1: Yeah, I can see both sides of this argument. I mean, as you were saying, he is i mean, just pure evil, one of the worst persons in not even just American history, but just human history. He's just a really, really bad person. Um, And he doesn't deserve to live. But the question is... Could we have benefited in some way of keeping him alive and studying him? So Dr. Wortham and the defense actually wanted to keep Albert alive just to study him, just because, as we've said several times, no one quite like him had ever been uh, recorded yet. And this modern medicine, we're, we're starting to get into the age of understanding psychology. And they were you know starting to list a bunch of different sexual fetishes and paraphilia And as we said, as we mentioned earlier, basically every category they had, Albert Fish had acted upon. So he was basically a whole textbook onto himself on what turned him on, what he was into. So, I mean, I don't know if the doctors could have learned anything from him, but I don't think it would have hurt anymore. I mean, he's not going to kill anybody else in prison. He's probably just going to find new ways to hurt himself and get off. So, I mean, might as well just let the doctors study this guy who, I mean, I I still don't, I haven't come across another criminal even in the past decade or two who comes close to matching his perversion, so.
0: Right, and that's a good point. I mean, not even just the doctors that could potentially learn something by studying him, but also, like, criminologists or detectives at the time. You know, even as early as the 19, the early, like, 1900s, I'm still they, still sure they could have gleaned some sort of information that would have proven useful in future situations, um, with with you know tracking down serial serial killers or something like that, but I mean the reason I kind of brought this up, I mean it's kind of a silly question to ask. Should he have been found guilty? Well, I mean you think absolutely, but at the same time, I mean the law and court is supposed to be consistent like that's why we have this concept of legal precedent so that if there is an outcome of one case that later on the outcome of that case can be used as as a, a means of supporting the outcome of the future case to you know kind of have consistency over a period of time so my question is is if he was literally insane the the idea being that insane people kinda get off a little bit earlier. They don't necessarily get the death penalty, yeah. they get life in prison or something like that. So for that reason alone, maybe he should have been found to be insane and just have gotten like life in prison. But at the same time, you know, good good riddance.
1: Yeah, I mean as you said, there there should be consistency, but at the same time the jury is the one who decides if they're found guilty by insanity or if they're sane. And I don't think you're going to find 12 people in New York who didn't want to see that guy fry. True. Um, And also, I mean, we talked a little about the defense, but the prosecution also brought out their own expert witnesses that said that, you know, Albert Fish is a liar, which we've gone over multiple times, so it's hard to believe his, you know, God is telling me these things. And then they also said that a lot of his sexual perversions, normal people had those too. It's just that he had virtually every perversion known to man. That's what made him unique. So some of the things that he was into, you know, your next door neighbor could be into, you know, one or two of those things and you never know. This guy just happened to be into every single thing he could think of. But it's kind of hard for us to say in the modern day just looking back, but... I don't know. I I don't really have a problem with them finding him guilty and just killing him. It was his time. Right. And Sean, you're probably
0: more of the serial killer expert, but after researching this case, I kind of found some unusual characteristics about this serial killer in in comparison with other serial killers that we've discussed. It kind of gives the impression that he had uh, a bit of a significant fear of getting caught at times. So, for example when he decided not to kill Keaton because he didn't want to be discovered. And also the manner in which he wrote the letter to Mrs. Budd and some of his pictures where he's like hiding and shying away from the camera. Um, and then I also read somewhere that the father of, you know, Grace Bud, when he confronted him in the courtroom, he like went to swing at him and he like cowered away in fear. So, It just seems like kind of an unusual observation from my perspective where most serial killers are completely remorseless and also have difficulty thinking about consequences of their actions or they just don't care. Uh, But he seems to have a little bit of a recognition of consequences to some degree. I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I
1: mean, that's something we've talked about in other episodes. You have, like, the disorganized and organized serial killers, where some yeah. will, will plan it out to a T so that they will get away, and others are just kind of, they go on passion, Um, you know, they're very brutal, and they don't really give too much thought into if they leave behind the evidence that's going to get caught. I'd assume most of them don't want to get caught because if they're in jail, then they can't, you know, kill or rape anybody anymore, and that's basically what they're into. But it's a
0: matter of whether or not they have the foresight to decide, hey, if I do this, I'm definitely going to go to jail. They just kind of do it and act off of impulse.
1: Yeah, well, it's a lot of times you see like a building up. So like Albert Fish, you know, he would, as a younger guy, he was just kind of creepy. He would just kind of stare at boys undressing, and then he would start to molest and rape kids. And then he ended up starting to murder them. So it mm-hmm. probably just gets to a point where the desire to just keep on escalating and escalating surpasses their fear of being caught. Again, every killer is different, but I assume pretty much everyone, they don't want to get caught and they can to an extent try to plan out or limit their risk of being caught, but at the yeah. end of the day they still have to go through with their urges. So, it's right. I mean, there's a bunch of different types of serial killers that, you know, some probably don't really care that much if they get caught. They just want to they just in the moments and others kind of plan out their whole career and try not to get caught, but eventually they almost always do anyway. Now, so we talked a lot about Albert Fish's history, his crime. As for his legacy, Albert Fish is still and will likely always be considered one of the worst serial killers in history. And though he may not have the body count of some other well-known killers, So he doesn't have the body count of, you know, Bundy or, you know, BTK or Kemper or Dahmer. Uh, his level of depravity and pure evil, in my mind, just elevates him to a level of darkness that not many others can match.
0: Yeah. It's almost like a, don't take this the wrong way, but like a quality over quantity kind of matter where the severity of his crimes are just so brutal and horrific that it completely makes up for his lower or lowish kill count. Although, again, we don't really know exactly how many people he did claim as victims.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So That wraps up this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own thoughts or feedback on the case of Albert Fish, the boogeyman, the gray man, feel free to write to us at our email, Strange Matters Podcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And also check out our website at strangematterspodcast.com where you can listen to, download, and comment on all of our episodes.
0: And if you're listening to us on iTunes, be sure to leave us a rating and a review so that we can you know, really promote our podcast. And also, if you have time, check us out on Patreon. We have a lot of great episodes up there um, that you may not ha- be able to listen to because you're not a Patreon supporter. As another follow-up, be sure to check out our latest podcast, HQTA Podcast, also known as Hard Questions, Tougher Answers. Until next time at the Strange Matters Podcast, take it easy, everybody.
1: Take care.